Hello and welcome to the Eating Disorder Therapist podcast. This is a podcast to help you find peace with food and overcome disordered eating. And I'm Harriet Frew, aka the Eating Disorder Therapist. And I'm so excited to share with you all kinds of stories, tips, information and guest interviews to help you on your journey in finding peace with food. So thank you so much for listening today. So today I'm talking to Dr. David Wiss. David became a registered dietitian nutritionist in 2013 and founded Nutrition and Recovery, a group practice of RDNs specializing in treating eating disorders as well as substance use. He earned his PhD in public health with a minor in health psychology from UCLA by investigating links between adverse childhood experiences and mental health outcomes among socially disadvantaged men. Dr. Wiss's newest venture is his app called Wise Mind Nutrition, and Wise Mind Nutrition delivers educational content using nutrition and lifestyle medicine to improve mental health outcomes. So I'm really looking forward to speaking with Dr. Wiss today. We're going to be exploring how adverse life experiences can impact your eating, disordered eating and eating disorder recovery, food and mental health, and the impact on the body positivity movement and to dive into the extreme polarizing that can often occur in the nutritional space and why some nuance is crucial around nutrition. So much value packed into this episode. Let's get to the conversation. Hi, Dr. Wiss. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I'm so excited to be here with you. Thank you for having me. Please, I firstly get you to introduce yourself to the listeners and just say a little bit more about what you do. Yes, absolutely. I am a registered dietitian nutritionist in practice, which means I've been doing one-on-one work for the last 11 years. So I have a lot of experience working with individuals and we run groups in treatment centers, addiction treatment centers, mental health. So I am part clinician. I'm also a part researcher. I have my doctorate in public health with a minor in health psychology So I've done a lot of mental health research, and I've really tried to bridge the gap between conversations around biomedical points of view, physical health, and mental, emotional, spiritual health using what we call the biopsychosocial model. So I'm one of these people that just loves nuance. I love thinking about things at the intersection. I love exploring difficult topics. I love working with difficult clients. I'm really drawn to challenges and to science. And then above and beyond that, I'm in West Los Angeles. I am a husband and a father, and I'm a seeker. I'm always looking for new experiences in life. I've had my fair share of adversity in my life, and I've really found a way to live a pretty peaceful life at age 42. But I can say that I've made a pretty good beginning, and I've got a lot of work to do. Oh, thank you for sharing. And I think congratulations on finding quite a peaceful life by the age of 42, because I think not everyone gets there. (laughs) Well, I have my moments. (laughs) (laughs) So Dr. Wiss, one of the things I'm very interested in, in terms of like research work that you've done, um, is looking at adverse life experiences and the impact this has on our eating. I know I work with many people in my practice who struggle with eating disorders. And I guess we know that the culture, the pressure to be thin, to look a certain way, all of that is often something that many, many people struggle with. 
But I know for my own clients, and I'm sure this is true for you, that people that have been through adverse life experiences, difficult times, maybe trauma or abuse or something else, often as well, it does really impact their relationship with food. And I think sometimes their symptoms then can be more pronounced if they develop an eating disorder. So I just wondered if you could share a bit more about your sort of expertise into all of this. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for that. Great question. There's a lot of potential pathways that could stem from childhood adversity. I think as you pointed out, there's also a lot of different forms of childhood adversity, right? The classic research using the adverse childhood experience measure, what people call the ACE score, really looks at adversity in the household. As you mentioned, physical, sexual abuse, emotional neglect, other forms of household dysfunction, parents having mental illness, using substances, going to prison, et cetera. And those 10 classic ACEs are very predictive of a lot of different health outcomes. And there's also a lot of other forms of childhood adversity that aren't on that scale. So that's just worth pointing out. People can experience bullying, uh, weight teasing in the community, in the school. There's a lot of forms of community level ACEs that are also often not captured by that research. And then in the context of disordered eating, there's also, and this hasn't been developed yet, it's been on my mind, this idea of adverse food-related experiences. So food insecurity is one of the ACEs on the classic ACE measure. But thinking about like, what if a parent was making comments about weight or putting their child on a diet, maybe even well-intentioned, There's a lot of different forms of adversity. The research that we have looks at those classic childhood maltreatment and household dysfunction ACEs. And based on that research, we know that one of the strongest outcomes associated with ACEs is substance use disorder. I think the original research suggested that people that had four or more ACEs were five or more times the odds of having an illicit substance use problem. And I think in the work that I've done, I've became very interested in understanding the biological mechanisms. Like, is it because they had a rough childhood and they ascribe meaning to it? Or is it possible that childhood adversity can quote unquote, get underneath the skin and change one's biology and make them more susceptible to behavioral health challenges? Some of the work that I've done has looked at what are some of these possible pathways. And I'm not gonna get into all of them. I don't think it would be worth going into those weeds, but I'll just mention very briefly that we know adverse childhood experiences affect the immune system. People have higher levels of cytokines and other pro-inflammatory markers. We know that it affects the HPA access. People have altered stress responses. In humans, we often measure that through cortisol. We know that it affects the brain and affects some of the structural, functional, and morphological features of the brain, the way different parts of the brain talk to each other, some of the shapes, sizes, et cetera. And then I think most relevant to eating behaviors is that adverse childhood experiences affect reward. They affect the way the brain registers reward. Sometimes we use the word salience, which is the assignment of value to an experience, So people that have had a lot of childhood trauma are more likely to remember experiences that are dopaminergic, meaning highly rewarding. 
it lends itself to the question, does childhood adversity increase eating behavior in along a potential pathway of an addiction continuum? And is that one of the risk factors for quote unquote disordered eating? And then of course, and I'll say this and then be quiet for a minute, we have other pathways where people that have a lot of adversity go down the road of more restriction, more classic restrictive eating disorders. I've always been interested in, is it possible that different forms of adversity confer risk for different outcomes, different types of eating disorders? But in a nutshell, I'll say this, ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, are more likely to predict overeating, binge eating, loss of control eating, and addiction-like eating than they are purely restrictive forms of eating disorders such as anorexia nervosa restrictive type. That's worth knowing that the biology pushes people more toward self-medication and loss of control than it does to purely control-based types of disordered eating. And yeah, I've been super interested in learning more there. We have a lot of studies so far, but there's definitely a need for more research to figure out the actual longitudinal trajectories. Is it possible that someone could have developed an addiction-like response to drugs and to food and then became a dieter, became a restrictor after that? Or is it possible that ACEs led to a loss of hunger, a loss of appetite, which led to undereating, which later on turned into binge eating? We have all these data to show the associations over the life course, but we need good studies to look at how that can play out specifically over time. Gosh, it sounds fascinating and also incredibly complex, isn't it? The interplay of all the different factors. Yes. And then, of course, you have issues of sex, gender, socioeconomic status, culture, right? You just bring in all these variables and it's just increasingly complex. Mm, that was so interesting. I was thinking as well as when you were sort of talking about that sort of dopamine response and people perhaps tending to be leaning more towards that kind of reward and whether it be overeating, binge eating, emotional eating. But I'm wondering as well, with the people that restrict, they often as well get that kind of dopamine response from almost the high of starvation or the high of pursuing weight loss. Could that be sort of viewed in a similar way that they're kind of chasing that dopamine hit in a slightly different way? Yeah. And there's been a lot of debate about that. I contributed to a textbook 10 years ago that really started this conversation of like, can eating disorders be conceptualized like an addiction? And it's pretty obvious that the overconsumption pathways with food and with other addictions are overlapping and similar. And this question of can restriction be an addiction has definitely caught my attention, but certainly conceptualized more as a behavioral or process addiction than a substance-related addiction. But I like the perspective because it certainly suggests or points to this idea that the behavior becomes so reinforcing that the person becomes highly motivated to engage in that behavior. And it's based on neurochemical reward. And using an addiction model, addiction model suggests that Those are things that can't easily be overcome just through a great session of talk therapy. Someone needs treatment or behavioral support, coaching, et cetera. I would endorse that perspective. 
I would say that not all forms of restrictive eating disorders would easily cluster with addiction-like pathways. I think there's other phenotypes. I've definitely seen in the literature and in my clinical practice, people that, as we'll say, get quote unquote, addicted to restriction. Kind of holding all of that in mind, I guess, you obviously work as a practitioner yourself with people with eating disorders. How do you approach treatment when you're working with people? Well, there's where the nuance comes in, right? (laughs) I don't know. I feel like I am a needle in a haystack sometimes. I feel like I'm all alone because I don't endorse a single food philosophy. I don't believe that all people should be grouped. I don't even believe that all eating disorders should be grouped into one category of eating disorders. Even amongst the diagnoses, I don't think that all people with bulimia nervosa are the same in terms of like what would be a best therapeutic intervention, nutritional strategy, medications. I'm not a prescriber, but I'm really interested in individual assessment and treatment. When someone comes to see me, I definitely have some paperwork, some online forms to fill out. And as a scientist, this does feel important to me. I know a lot of people feel like it's arduous or excessive, but I do want to know what someone has been through before we get to work together on our first session. I'm already coming in there with information about ACEs, eating behavior, restriction, addiction, history. I look at food intake, perceived discrimination. I'm very interested in seeing where someone fits on some of these continuums. And then on the first meeting, I spend the rest of the hour learning about someone's medical history, some of their food preferences, and really just connecting with the person so I could build some clinical intuition around what might be the best approach to take. And I almost never know by the end of the first meeting, I kind of have this ongoing curiosity in the clinical work that I do rather than this expert point of view. I think there's a lot of people that would say, I am the doctor, I know what you need and you should listen to me. I take a much more gentle approach and I like to co-create treatment and recovery with people. I've used apps for many years to really follow someone's food journey. I used a lot of eating disorder apps in the last 10 or so years and I got eventually frustrated with them. So I built my own recently called Wise Mind Nutrition. And at the end of the first session, we might open the app and start setting some intentions together. Perhaps someone wants to work on water consumption or getting into a more consistent pattern with sleep or with eating. There's a lot of room for intentions to get set. And then, yeah, in that first week of working together, someone's usually logging their food in the app. And the apps and things that I work with are non-math centric. These aren't calorie apps or fitness apps or macro tracking apps. These are places where people can log qualitative aspects of eating, what food groups were present, how hungry was I, how full was I. And I really like these approaches because I do have the opinion that a lot of the numbers and a lot of the math do confer a lot of risk for rigidity and disordered eating. So a big part of what I've been trying to do clinically and with the app is to remove some of that math-centric modeling around nutrition and just get people to think about food a little bit more 
qualitatively. Yes, in the first week, I'll hopefully be able to look at someone's food logs and their nightly review. And then when we come back on the second week, we have a chance to start building guiding principles. So I know that a lot of people in my field prescribe meal plans and say, this is what I want you to do. Let me know how it goes. I'm more of a practitioner that would like to see what someone is doing and then look for ways that we can improve it. Let's add this here. Let's think about adding a snack or rounding this meal out, or let's get some more colors in there. Let's add an evening snack. I'm really big on identifying people's strengths and then just building out on that and adding to it. But of course, there are certain types of eating disorders that need a little bit more structure. And I'm flexible to meeting someone there as well. There are times when someone needs something very definitive. Otherwise, they're going to have to think too much. I think I have a pretty diverse toolkit. I have a kit of tools that I use, and the app is super helpful to be able to support people in their journey. Time for a short advertisement break. On the outside, you have it all together. You're successful. You seem happy. But what your friends and family don't see is that you're living in the vicious cycle of bulimia. You know that something needs to change. Your health depends on it. But you just don't know where to start or how to move forward. That's where Conquering Bulimia comes in. It's a one-of-a-kind online recovery course brought to you by certified eating disorder coaches Sarah Lee and Merritt Elizabeth. They know exactly what you're going through. They both recovered from bulimia and have teamed up with leading experts to create an online course with over 70 videos as a powerful addition to your recovery. Conquering Bulimia is private and self-paced, filled with personal stories and coaching tips that will teach you how to change your behaviours for good. It will challenge and inspire you, and it's affordable, offered at an incredible discount of over 60% of the cost of one-on-one coaching. Break free from bulimia on your terms and start living the life of peace you deserve at conqueringbulimia.com. And with the sort of nutritional side of things, like I know like you're really big on nuance and not kind of enforcing away. And I love the way you say they're kind of like working with that individual and building on their strengths and seeing what they can add in rather than coming in with some kind of rigid meal plan or whatever. But do you tend to work towards, because I know there's kind of like the abstinence model is used quite a lot, isn't it, in the US? Or are you more kind of all foods fit? Or do you sort of sit somewhere in between there? What are your thoughts? Yeah, it's a question that I get all the time. Like, which camp are you in? You have (laughs) to pick one. That's the question that always has me frustrated. I don't like extremes. I don't like far ends of either spectrum. Those things bother me because it definitely feels like when you have a strong point of view, you're not able to hear other points of view. It's heightened by the polarization in the political climate. And it just feels like the wrong approach to say, this is where I stand. It seems more beneficial for the provider than it is for the patient. But to answer your question, I'm certainly not dodging it. I am a non-diet practitioner, but I work with a lot of people that have substance use disorder histories. My company, Nutrition and Recovery, has definitely worked with people that have addiction histories in that substance use disorder, alcohol. A lot of people have cross addictions with caffeine, nicotine, behavioral addictions, sex, porn, shopping, you name it. And there's certainly a phenotype of person that has 
addiction like eating, as we'll call it. I know it's super controversial, but in the population that I've worked with, it exists. There's thousands of documented studies to show that it exists. The part where I differ, I think that community has a lot of problems because if you were to search online or go to social media, you would see a lot of abstinence-focused, rigid approaches to eating that I think most people perceive as diet culture. And I think that the difference between this quote-unquote food addiction model and the classic all-foods-fit model has really increased the polarization in the nutrition field to where the people that are all-foods-fit see that any sort of approach that honors addiction or points to the food as potentially being a contributor to loss of control eating is deemed as harmful information. And then the people that are in the food addiction camp see the people that are kind of pushing the intuitive eating, all foods fit message, feel like they are pushing corporate agendas on people. The food mm -hmm. companies ultimate desires to sell more packaged foods, et cetera. And then they end up at war with each other. And it's been my experience as a practitioner that patients and clients, people that are seeking help, end up being forced with this sort of choice. Do I want to pick like a classic all foods fit intuitive eating practitioner, or should I check out one of these like addiction-based, abstinence-based treatment models. And I've just been this lone wolf that sees problems with both of them. And I've really tried to, it's not so much that I believe that, I'll say this, I learned in statistics. I took a lot of statistics when I got my PhD. And one of the most profound things I heard said, I never forgot it. They said, all models are wrong, but some of them are useful. Mm. And this is referring to statistical models models that we use to make sense out of the world and to make predictions. I come from this perspective that the food addiction model is wrong, but it has some useful information in it. Similarly, the all foods fit model is wrong, but it has a lot of really good stuff that we can embody. Yeah. I try to just work at an intersection. I have mm -hmm. a client that I would eat a cupcake with because that's what their recovery needs. And I might have a client that probably doesn't benefit from eating cupcakes. I think it's just so important that practitioners have the capacity to understand that there's a wide range of possibilities that exist in nature and that mm -hmm. this campsite culture that we've created in the eating disorder space has only hurt our clients. It's created us versus them energy, in-group versus out-group, and it's really heightened in our charged world of, like I said, this political climate of the world where people are looking for others that resemble themselves and looking for evidence that someone is part of a different group. And I've just seen it turn the nutrition field into a really unsafe place for people seeking help and for professionals. For example, I'll say this and then be quiet. There is a lot of problems with the food industry. There's definitely issues with food companies and some of their practices with plastics and packaging food and certain forms of ultra processing. There's a lot of health issues that go un 
challenged because of the corporate structures in our world. And as a food positive, body positive dietitian, I've always been curious about how the food companies are able to get away with whatever they want. But someone like me might be very scared to talk about those things on a social media platform because it does come across like, oh, well, what are you saying? Are you saying that there's something wrong with the food supply? I thought you were all foods fit. And so it just creates this very uncomfortable place for people to be able to message about health in nuanced ways. And I've been talking about this for a while now. And I think a lot of people send me messages and they say, yes, you're so right. I agree with you. But it still hasn't changed very much. There is a very clear diet versus non-diet divide in the nutrition space. And of course, if someone forced me into choosing, I would say I'm non-diet. I don't like weight loss, calories, fitness, none of that stuff interests me. But the only thing that I do have as a bone to pick with the non-diet is that it does seem like a lot of the messaging is very subtly promoting the financial agenda of the major food corporations, which is where I'm like, I didn't become a healthcare professional to do that. I've taken the perspective that you can be food positive, body positive, non-diet, and still honor the fact that there are foods that are supportive of mental health. And there are foods that are really designed more for corporate private profits rather than public health. And I think most people would agree, but I want to acknowledge that the stuff that I'm saying right now can also make people uncomfortable. And if you're listening, I just want to invite you to lean into the nuance and take a look at what's true for you. Each person is different and we have to think about individual health, population health. And if being concerned about the food supply is not helpful, then I don't recommend that. I'm really talking about public health right now. My PhD is in public health. So I have a tendency to think about people as a clinician and then to think about populations and groups, which I think is a really awesome way to look at health. Mm. Yeah, thank you for that. And I think there's a lot for people to reflect on because I think nowadays as well, I know many of my listeners consume a lot of their content from social media. And yeah, social media is not nuanced. It's very black and white. That's right. Um, and Dr. Wiss, what about sort of psychological support as well that you're giving your clients? Like, I understand as well, it sounds like with your app and your diary, that's actually incorporating some psychological aspects already because people are recording more perhaps kind of their feelings and tuning into their body, etc. Are there particular therapies that you lean towards or do you use a mixture or where are you sort of coming from in terms of the psychological approach to treating eating disorders? Yeah. Everything is psychology, everything is social context, and everything has biological underpinnings. So it's such a great question. I do believe in empowering people to be their own gurus. I know that not everyone is positioned into that. I try not to like be the ultimate deciding factor for anyone on anything. I'm a big fan of journaling. At the end of the day, there are questions. What did I do well? What corrective measures can I take? What can I do better tomorrow? That sort of thing. I think that my main skill set in counseling and some of the psychologically based work is 
being able to assess people's continuum of cognitive rigidity versus cognitive fluidity. I think that because of the work that I do with people that have trauma histories and addictions, there does tend to be a lot of cognitive rigidity. And a lot of that comes from survival mechanisms. People that have had significant PTSD and have addiction histories tend to be more rigid in some ways. Okay. And it's important to be rigid. For example, if someone has hardcore addiction history and they get sober, you're not going to be able to stay sober in an environment filled with alcohol without some level of cognitive rigidity. I'm very interested in looking at cognitive rigidity and how that can be maybe helpful in one area and then very hurtful in another. I think most mental health professionals would agree that cognitive rigidity is not a marker of mental health. In the context of food and eating behavior, I like to use that model to think about how to move someone toward a more fluid approach, okay? We know that rule-based eating and rigid approaches to eating can often swing to the other extreme and lead to binge eating and loss of control eating. But the population that I work with can't just go from being rigid to being fluid overnight. I think about little steps that need to be taken to make someone feel more safe, to make someone feel more trusting of their body, to start checking in, being more attuned, and then moving to a more fluid, principle-based approach rather than a rule-based approach. And I find this to be very, very meaningful work that I think a lot of people overlook. I know it's not part of any sort of classic nutrition or dietetic training. I know that a lot of mental health professionals have the common cognitive distortions in their mind. Most people would agree that all or nothing thinking and black and white thinking is not supportive. But the nuance that I bring to that conversation is that when people have a lot of trauma history and they have addiction history, the all or nothing thinking is sometimes neurobiological. It's sometimes survival-based rather than a simple choice. The question becomes, how do you move toward more fluidity, more openness in the domain of relational health and actual nutritional health in a way that's going to actually sustain rather than what I think I see a lot of people do is try to move people into intuitive eating or like a no rule based approach to food too quickly. It just leaves people feeling baffled and confused. So I'm very interested in doing work with people that's gradual, progressive, and that the psychological interventions can actually match some of the biological changes that are happening in recovery so that it all comes into harmony and people don't feel baffled by their own behavior and their own thinking patterns. Mm. I think it's a great point about just how it needs to be such kind of gradual, incremental change. I can just think of a number of people that say, oh, I've tried, the baby. they're stuck in a restrict binge cycle and then they experiment with intuitive eating. It's just like way too much too soon completely overwhelming and baffling they just feel then they failed and they kind of resort back to what they know is safe really I guess that restricting the binge cycle with those sort of baby steps that incremental work it would be some sort of behavioral change would it but then maybe really I don't know accessing maybe some self-compassion and thought challenging and I guess whatever is appropriate for that individual as they're kind of taking those steps out their comfort zone 
That's right. That's right. A lot of people are using the Wise Mind Nutrition app as a standalone, but it really is designed to be used in conjunction with someone like yourself or with me so that you're able to do self-reflections and then bring in some of the more pertinent issues into session. And then, yeah, having someone like myself or you to help unpack some of that and figure out what might be a challenge, what might be a new way of thinking. I use a lot of language around old ideas, old ideas around food and body, and thinking about how we can create new chapter energy and what might be some of the new ideas that will be a hallmark of this new chapter we're stepping into. And yeah, encouraging people to figure that out through their own self-reflection, but also being there to nudge someone and say, let's try this, let's do this together. And as a person that does one-on-one work with people, there's a fine line between listening and offering feedback, challenging people's thoughts. But yeah, the classic cognitive behavioral therapy models of thinking about just how things start with thoughts and how that manifests all the way down the chain to behaviors, et cetera. Mm. I like the new chapter energy. I think that's got a really nice kind of ring to it. It does feel empowering and so energetic and fresh and new and it gives hope, doesn't it? I really like that. And would you focus much on the past of dealing with sort of past trauma? Would that be sort of part of the therapy? It depends. I really try to stay in my lane and I might be interested in what were some of the environments like as an eater growing up. I'm very interested in someone's family system, you know, as it relates to comparison, body comparison, body talk, food talk. And I am a functional medicine practitioner and a big part of what we do in functional medicine is really try to create what we call a a timeline. And I know this is a common approach in a lot of eating disorder work, looking at the timeline of dieting or weight changes, et cetera. I see a timeline as being important when you think about the onset of certain behavioral health challenges, especially in the work that I do around addictions and eating disorders. I'm always interested in knowing which one of those sort of showed up first. But yeah, doing a timeline with looking at different life events, different forms of adversity as it relates to health definitely is a valuable piece of work. But in terms of doing specific processing of childhood trauma, that's something that I would want to refer out to someone who does just that. Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit more about your app? Was it launched in the summer? Yeah, I launched the Apple version in the summer and it took me many months to get the Google Play or the Android version to market. So the soft launch was a few months ago and I'm just now doing a much harder launch now that the app is fully developed and available on all platforms. I think those first few months were getting people to use it, to finish the program and to offer some feedback. I could really improve it based on the user experience, um, add features and add some clarification points so that everything flowed smoothly. And I'm really excited to announce that we got it to a fully developed version and people are using it and loving it and 
I've got some incredible reviews coming in. It's been a life-changing process. The app really was built, it's called Wise Mind Nutrition, Wise Mind being a principle of DBT, Dialectical Behavioral Therapy, which really looks at this sort of intersection space. You know, in DBT, we identify the logical mind, very rational, and the emotional mind, which is more mood dependent. And then the wise mind is at the intersection. So I built the app to be this intersectional area between what I'm going to call divergent camps in the nutrition space, different food philosophies, et cetera. But it was designed to help people eat food for mood and brain health, which is basically nutrition for mental health without falling into any diet culture energy. That's what makes it unique is that it is a eating disorder informed app, but it's not an eating disorder exclusive app, which means that someone could be in therapy and just have some gut issues related to medications that they're taking or have some just mild food and health dysfunction and be able to come in and start logging their food, connect to a provider. And then we also have a pretty extensive program in the app. There are 43 modules which build on each other. The first nine are free. There's a lot of free features in the app. It's designed to be very welcoming as a no-cost, low-cost treatment option. So it's built for someone to be able to come in, use the food log, use all the features, connect to a provider for $0. That's really important for me. I had a lot of people seek treatment with me over the years and just not be able to afford it. So I really built the app so someone could get a taste of treatment for $0. At some point in the journey, if people are digging it, they can decide, I want to do this daily program. So there is daily programming in the free version, which includes a video. There's additional links for people to read. We'll have some cooking instructions, meditations. There's an opportunity for people to start saving information into the digital workbook. And then once the full program starts, we have some assessment tools that look at mental health, depression, anxiety, trauma, eating disorder, addictions, et cetera, and start to provide a little bit of personalized messaging based on mental health scores. So if someone has a lot of anxiety or ADHD, they might get some very targeted messaging about what to focus on, what to hone in on, et cetera. And the journey is designed to be done on a daily basis over the course of a month. But a lot of people are doing it a little bit more slowly. There's no real rush. Doing it over the course of two months seems to be a winning formula for a lot of people so far. But each day, yeah, there's assignments, things to think about. There are opportunities to grow, to look at your barriers, to cooking at home. But it's a celebration movement. It's about bringing joy back to food. It's about not dieting. It's about spirituality. There's yoga and meditations and things like that in there. So I built it to be a comprehensive and robust healing journey for someone that is seeking mental wellness and wants to get nutrition information that's safe, non-triggering, trauma-informed, and will be sustainable. So at no point in the program do I take any particular points of view about food philosophies or really strong points of view about any foods. It really is just me providing some information with some scientific references and letting people sort of draw their own conclusions and set their own intentions. 
It's fully flexible to work with someone that has a restrictive eating disorder. It's also fully flexible to work with someone that has very strong compulsive loss of control addiction like tendencies. And that was the hardest part of the app is to build it with neutral energy, neutral languaging, so that it would be fully flexible to meet a wide range of eaters and not just be another one of these. Well, this is how we do it here. Everyone should get this message. I just don't take that point of view. I take the point of view of there's a wide range of ways that people present. There's a wide range of messages that resonate with people. Let's start talking about that and help you build your own nutritional identity, become your own eater, and be empowered to navigate the tricky food environment with confidence and not have it be based on facts. I sometimes use the phrase, people are on a high fact diet. They just know too much. So it's not about knowing more. Sometimes it's about knowing less. And the program is designed to get people thinking in new ways. So I don't just talk about when to eat or what to eat or how to eat. I really talk about how to think about food and body and language to use and being a more principle-based person rather than a rule-based person. So it goes way beyond nutrition. It's lifestyle medicine, functional medicine, but it's also designed to crack open the mind and the heart of people that are looking for that new chapter energy. Okay, fantastic. And if people want to seek it out, it's the Wise Mind Nutrition app. Is that right? Want people yep. to search for it? Yeah, it's three words, Wise Mind Nutrition, and it's in the Apple App Store and Google Play. You can also check out the website, wisemindnutrition.com. I have about 90 blogs on there about nutrition for mental health. There's stuff about trauma-informed nutrition, eating disorders, a lot of stuff about nutrition for mental health, magnesium, gut health, that sort of thing. So I'm really trying to create this new conversation around nutrition as being important for brain health, not just something that is related to muscles and fat. I find that nutrition message that is prevalent to be quite shallow, just thinking about the numbers and the appearance. And so I'm trying to get people to move away from vanity and moving toward sanity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they sure. Well, I'm sure like many people listening will be really interested to seek out the app. It sounds like it's just so much more than just a nutritional kind of app, isn't it? And there's so much nuance and it goes so much deeper. It sounds like it's some a tool that can really empower you on your journey to get to know yourself and understand yourself better and form your own opinions and to reflect on what's going to be the most helpful healing path for you personally. That's it. You said it. And Couple of people that had such profound experiences with the app that they're now coaching other people through the journey. So it's built to have connections available so that, for example, even if three or four people that went through treatment together and that were in eating disorder recovery wanted to embark on a healing journey and log their food, they could all follow each other in the app. And it's completely HIPAA compliant and anonymous. So you can't see anyone else's activity. But for example, someone could go in and you could see what your friend is doing and get some inspiration for eating with moderation and balance and inclusivity. Obviously, you'd want someone to be far along in their recovery journey to where it doesn't turn into a comparison game. There's an opportunity for people to do it together. 
and to read each other's journals. You can decide what you want to share. If you want to share your workbook or your intentions, that's all optional. But I did build it so that people would be able to embark on this journey, this no-cost, low-cost journey, and be able to do it with others because we know that social support is critical to all forms of health. Yeah, and no, I think that social support just is fantastic, isn't it? And I think it's incredible, actually, that you've got that built in on the app as well, because obviously it's not going to be for everybody, but for some people that could be a real game changer, couldn't it, to be on that kind of journey together and inspiring and motivating and encouraging one another. That's right. And so I follow all my clients on the app. And when people do the app work and they have a provider, a practitioner, the results are incredible. Yeah, no, I can imagine actually when you're just really sort of cheerleading and supporting someone on. And then I guess that kind of like that gentle, supportive accountability can be really helpful. That's right. And I did build it for mental health practitioners that know they want to support people with their nutrition and their health, but don't always feel comfortable getting into the nuances of food groups and things like that. So for therapists or any mental health listeners, there's a chance to use it with your clients and outsource some of the education to me and then just be there to provide, like you said, that little bit of support, accountability, and rooting for people. Oh, fantastic. Well, Dr. West, I just want to say thank you so much, you know, for sharing your expertise. I'll definitely make sure that all the details about the app and your website go into the show notes because I'm sure that many people will want to get in touch or kind of download the app or visit your website and read the blogs. Thank you so much. I think it's just sort of fascinating the work that you are doing. It's incredibly far-reaching as well. You obviously have absolute passion and enthusiasm and lots of energy and I think an incredible work ethic to achieve everything that you are doing. Thank you for everything you're doing and for the conversation today. Yeah, I appreciate your support so much. I really enjoyed connecting with you and thank you for hosting a podcast. It's so important to get information out to people and safe information for especially those that are struggling with eating disorders and food and body. We definitely need some collective healing in that area and I'm so grateful to be a part of it. Thank you. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation just as much as I did. And do go and check out all of Dr. David Wiss's info in the show notes. If you're not following me already, do seek me out on Instagram at the eating disorder therapist underscore. And for further support with your relationship with food, do go to the eating disorder therapist.co.uk. If you enjoyed this podcast, I would be so grateful if you'd follow, rate and review as it helps it reach so many more listeners. And if you're professional listening and you're supporting people with eating disorders or body image issues, you may be interested in my online training courses. Link is in the show notes if you want to find out more information. Thank you so much for listening and I look forward to sharing another podcast episode with you very soon. 